Welcome to the Health Nuts Podcast with certified holistic nutrition consultants, Mary Vance and Caitlin Weeks. Our goal is to dispel mainstream nutrition myths and bring you the best in holistic health and real food education. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. And hi, Caitlin. Hi, Mary. How are you today? Doing well. Just enjoying some detox tea and sitting here excited for our guest today. And we're going to introduce her shortly. But before we begin, I will read our disclaimer. And that is, the only purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. It is no substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided with the understanding that it does not constitute medical advice or services. Instead, we discourage you to discuss your concerns with a licensed healthcare provider. Caitlin Weeks and Mary Vance assume no liability for any of your activities in connection with this podcast. And you can find us both online at grassfedgirl.com and maryvancenc.com and also on Facebook. So join us there. So what is new on your site, Caitlin? Well, I wrote some posts about, um, well, two recipes. So I had a fat bombs, like, <laughs> and these are unbelievably popular. These, I made them coconut fat bombs. Because yeah, my sister-in-law upstairs actually made them and gave me a few. So they're very good. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, and they were cinnamon. I made it for my dad, who can't eat chocolate, which, I mean, I don't know if I buy that, but... Just use carob instead. I love carob. And it's actually good for your intestinal lining, I think. Well, I didn't really plan it out very much, but the, I made those for him, and he thought they were great. And then the paleo sandwich bread, which I made, it's kind of like three or four recipes... You know, I borrowed a little bit from all these different recipes that I've seen and made my own version. So people seem to like that, too. It kind of looks like Ezekiel bread, which everyone thinks is so healthy, but... <laughs> we know better. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you want that Ezekiel bread kind of like hippie okay. feel, you can make your this paleo sandwich bread that I made. And then I was also on this podcast called The Healthy Comedian with Dan French. So that was a pretty good interview. So you can listen to that. So what about you, Mary? Cool. I am doing a little kind of mini 14 or 21 day, I haven't decided yet, detox. Because uh, the Paleo Mama, actually, not to be confused with the Paleo Mom, but the Paleo Mama, Jackie, decided to do my detox program. And, and I was offering a special 20% off discount to on my book. So if you go to her site, thepaleomama.com, you can get my book for 20% off. And there's hundreds of us doing this 14 day or 21 day, I'm sorry, uh, detox program. So I'm doing that right now, which is why I'm drinking detox tea. Uh, so I'm just doing that little kind of mini cleanse and joining them for solidarity. And on my site, uh, what do I have here? I added a low-carb paleo stuffed eggplant recipe, which is not autoimmune friendly. Sorry, everyone. And also a guide to troubleshooting your digestive issues, which is something I talk about on a daily basis with my clients. So I figured I'd just put up some guidelines. So if you have digestive issues like gas or bur burping, heartburn, indigestion, constipation, diarrhea, I give you kind of a little guide to diagnose what might be the problem, you know, so you can self-diagnose. 
and give you some guidelines on what that might be. And then there's also a paleo crockpot carnitas, which is super easy and really delicious recipe. But I guess the newest thing on my site is actually my site itself because it just got redesigned. <laughs> so go check it out, maryvancenc.com. And if you want to join us for this detox program, it's, it's a Whole Foods 21-day holistic detox. And you can input the code DETOX14, so that's D-T-O-X-14 at checkout, and you'll get 20% off of the book that gives you all the guidelines and the free bonus guide. So that's wow. that's the spiel. Awesome. Yeah, your, your detox program is pretty hardcore. <laughs> it's it's pretty basic for compared to a lot of the detox programs out there where you have to drink juice all day or drink lemon water or whatever kind of crazy things people do. At least uh, you're eating real food and learning how to clean up your diet and, and eat liver-friendly foods and dump all the, the junk and toxins out of your life that can lead to liver detox pathway congestion and cause a lot of symptoms. So it's one of the, the better programs out there because there's no fasting or funny stuff. So uh, you can take a look there. But let's talk about our guest, Sarah Ballantyne, who is the paleo mom and just wrote a new book. We're going to talk all about that today. And we got a bunch of questions in. Um, but let's introduce her. Caitlin, do you want to talk a little bit about her? And we've had Sarah, of course, on before uh, to discuss autoimmune conditions. And so we're happy to welcome her back. Yes, Sarah Ballantyne is the author of paleomom.com. And she is a researcher and a PhD, and she has two kids. She lives in Atlanta, and she lost over 100 pounds several times and had a big health breakdown that led to her trying to find answers with the autoimmune paleo. She kind of invented autoimmune paleo, actually, <laughs> because there wasn't much information when she had her health breakdown. And um, But I'll let her tell us more uh, as we go. So... Sarah, we're so happy to have you. Thanks for joining us. I am so happy to be back. Thanks for inviting me. No problem. We just yeah. love this stuff and never get enough of it. <laughs> I'm pretty much the same nutrition geek over here. Yep. Yeah, we, we really enjoyed having you last time, and that podcast was a great success. So we're happy to have you back to keep the conversation going. Yeah, I got your book in the mail, and I mean, I got a workout carrying it up the, <laughs> the stairs from my Amazon man. It is a heavy book. <laughs> Over 400 pages, right? It's Yeah, it's 432 pages, and I have been joking, actually, um, for several months now that people would need to get two so that they could bench press it. <laughs> yeah, you don't want one side to be really no. strong and the other. Um, but what's so cool about it? Is it's really colorful and it's got lots of di like diagrams and illustrations, which I understand you did yourself. I did. I did. Um, not, uh, I think there were six we hired a medical illustrator to do because I don't have the skills to draw gross anatomy, but all of the technical illustrations where you see things about like what's happening in the gut barrier, what's happening inside the cells that line the gut, all of those are my illustrations. 
They're so great because I know when I was first in nutrition school, well, I don't think I even learned about leaky gut in nutrition school, but maybe. But, uh, you know, it was so confusing. And, you know, seeing those images, they really stick with you. And it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense, you know. Whereas somebody who hasn't heard, you know, leaky gut a thousand times, it will be really helpful for them. Well, I'm also a very visual learner. And I, I wanted to have as many different ways for people to understand the information in the book as possible. Because for some people, and I'm one of them, if I'm just reading text, I get to this place where I'm not really absorbing it. And I'll end up sort of reading for 10 minutes and realize that I, I didn't actually pay attention to what I was reading. And when you're you know, reading a novel or something like that, that's not really a big deal. Um, you usually get enough of the broad strokes that you can keep going. But if you're trying to understand um, a scientific concept, you end up having to go back and reread because you, you, if you miss the, especially if you sort of miss the beginning, it gets really, really hard to, to figure out what's going on as you get deeper and deeper into it. So it, it was really important to me that the book be very visual, not just to help people understand, but to also make it fun to read, um, and make it, uh, you know, just sort of fun to flip through, make, not make it intimidating because it is, um, there's a fairly large amount of scientific detail in it. And it does have an almost textbook feel to it, but I didn't want it to feel like a boring textbook that people would, you know, not want to read because they associate that with school and tests and exams. I wanted it to be something that was going to be fun and, and visually fun as well as sort of the style of, of writing. Well, I like how there's all those little boxes like, you know, note this and, you know, it makes it, I think as bloggers, we learn how to write stuff to where people will see it, like lots of spaces and little boxes and, you know, big, big print. And that's really helpful for the reader. I totally fell in love with the text box as a um, tool for organizing information when I was writing. Um, and it was one of the things that I found really different about writing the book compared to writing a blog post is the ideas are so much longer. I mean, there was things that I tackled in this book that I just wouldn't be able to condense into a blog post because it just takes you know so much more time to t- sort of convey that information. And then what was happening was, as the narrative was getting longer, I had all these bits and pieces of tangents. And it didn't fit into the main narrative, but it was, you know, really important to have close by. And that allowed me to sort of visually separate it, but have it in the right section and have it be like a tangent, as though you were having a conversation and you just kind of followed a slightly different path and then went back to your main conversation. And that's not something that I... I think is very easy to do in a blog post. I mean, some people are able to sort of put in those text boxes and and make it work, but it's not a tool that I use very often when I'm writing for the blog. Well, we are curious, you know, I know that, that your book kind of tells everyone how the quote healthy foods can actually contribute to the development of disease. And I think that you know, people are really starting to make this connection between what we've been told is healthy, like low fat and whole grains and soy foods are truly at the cause of a lot of health problems. So tell us kind of what inspired you to write The Paleo Approach. The main inspiration for 
the paleo approach was my own health journey. Um, I was an overweight teenager. I lost weight following a low carb diet in my early twenties. Um, I decided to become physically fit. So I took up marathoning. I had a major health crisis in my mid twenties, um, which involved the, I mean, I had not actually been particularly healthy and I had had a lot of health issues, um, which I sort of dismissed. Um, but when I had this health crisis, it was the onset of an autoimmune disease and some immune related diseases all at the same time. Um, I gained a lot of weight because I was put on really high doses of steroids for several months. And, um, and I basically had, you know, this, um, level of what I sort of considered health sort of robbed for me. And on hindsight, I wasn't as healthy as I thought I was just because I could run 26 miles. That didn't mean I was healthy. And then I really struggled. I struggled for a long time. I had uh, a fairly complicated first pregnancy because I was obese when I got pregnant. Um, I again sort of managed to stick to a low carb diet and lose the weight, which helped some of my issues. I mean, I had been pre-diabetic, so it, it helped with blood sugar regulation. Um, but I still wasn't healthy and I was having a lot of issues with skin conditions. I have scalp psoriasis and, um, patches of eczema, or at least I had, and an autoimmune condition called lichen planus, um, which is a sort of a, a deeper layer of skin than psoriasis. And, um, and I, I had this realization that even though I had lost weight and even though I was physically active, that 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 was a very simplistic definition of health and that being healthy meant more than that. And I started to try and understand why being thin wasn't enough to make me healthy, which is what brought me to the paleo diet. And following a paleo diet did wonders for my health, but it still didn't fix my autoimmune disease. So that held, had me experimenting and delving deeper into the science and trying to understand really the details of how the foods I was eating was interacting with my body. And that was when I started to really understand about micronutrients and how important micronutrients are for every single cell and for every single chemical reaction in the body. And that was when I started to really understand that food was more than just fuel. And it was more than just, if you eat too much fuel, you'll gain weight. If you eat less fuel, you'll lose weight. If you eat just the right amount, you'll maintain your weight. Um, and it became food as nutrition. And that was really a switch in mindset for me. And even I think within the paleo movement, um, I feel like I'm still trying to bring attention to the importance of micronutrients, the importance of vitamin and mineral and antioxidant rich foods, the importance of the types of amino acids that we're eating, the importance of the types of fatty acids that we're eating. Um, because I think even within the paleo diet, there's sort of, there's the, there's a lot of variation in how people are implementing this diet. And there's ways that you can implement a paleo diet that isn't as nutrient dense that actually is still not providing your body with enough nutrition. And there's like the crazy opposite side of that, which is what the paleo approach really presents. Um, but really I, because I'm a scientist and because understanding the science behind something is a huge motivational factor for me. Um, I, I wrote the book, I mean, I guess mostly for me 20 years ago, you know, if I had had this book, 
20 years ago, how much it would have changed my health um, and, and how a difference in health would have completely changed, you know, the options that I had in terms of the choices I was making with my life. Um, and then basically for everybody else who's going through a similar struggle, um, there's something like 50 or 60 million Americans with autoimmune disease who could be making changes to their diet and lifestyle and, um, you know, stopping the progression of their disease. Many of them would be able to put their diseases into remission. And, um, and I feel like there's so much awareness that cardiovascular disease is linked to diet. There's so much awareness that um, diabetes, type 2 diabetes anyways, is linked to diet or that obesity is linked to diet. And even though there's a lot of disconnects in terms of what the actual problems with diet are in terms of contributing to those diseases, you know, the general population has a pretty good idea that, that they could change something and reduce their risks of other diseases or reverse those diseases depending on how, you know, what stages they're in and how much damage is done to their bodies already. And there's no connection in the public or, or in the medical community between autoimmune disease and diet, even though when you look at the scientific literature, there's tons of connections. And um, I really kind of wanted to bring awareness um, to both the patients and their healthcare providers that um, you know diet and lifestyle are are critical for managing these diseases. I mean, there's still times where medications may be necessary, um, but they should be a, a last resort or at least a, you know, that sort of a, a farther down the road step after making diet and lifestyle changes. Have you had any feedback or interaction with, with any doctor since you've written this book? I, well, I have actually, um, and I've actually been approached by um, several doctors, um, and um, now most of the doctors that I have talked to were already, I think, fairly nutrition savvy. Um, but I, I've also been <laughs> handing out this book to my doctors and my children's doctors as we have appointments um, since <laughs> it's come out. I've taken the opportunity, and um, I think that. You know, I, I've had actually one doctor ask me if I would come and um, do a talk at um, their medical school because um, she's used um, the paleo approach to reverse her autoimmune disease and she wants to show her colleagues all of the science behind it. And I think that, you know, certainly the early feedback from medical professionals is holy smokes, I didn't know all this. And um, what's fantastic is that there's enough detail and then there's 1,200 scientific references um, in an appendix in the back that um, a medical professional is able to look at this book and take it seriously. But then it's also, you know, accessible enough that a patient is able to to take it. And, um, you know, some people aren't going to even be interested in understanding all of the details, but there's also lots of summaries and reviews and take-home messages, um, and then really practical implementation stuff, how to make time for cooking. There's food lists and shopping lists where to source ingredients. Um, and so the patient's going to be able to take it and, and change what they're doing and manage their diseases. So I'm hoping to kind of bring everybody on the same page with this. And, and so far it's, the, the early feedback is that it's actually doing exactly that, which is awesome. 
Well, kind of on that same vein, like, how would somebody, you know, talk to their doctor if they were interested? And, you know, do they need to let them know or they want, you know, if they're ready to do paleo or autoimmune paleo? Well, I think it's, I mean, anytime you make any kind of change, you know, especially if you're battling an autoimmune disease or any kind of chronic illness, you, you want your doctor on board. You want your doctor to know and be part of your team. And there are situations where, you know, you might want to be tested more frequently to adjust medications. For example, if you're on blood thinners and you're going to dramatically increase your vitamin K intake because you're increasing the amount of leafy greens that you're eating, you know, you might need to adjust your dose of blood thinners. So you want your doctor to be on board with that and know that you're going to be making these changes so that you can get tested. Um, the same thing would happen with something like you know, thyroid hormone replacement. If you're going to make all these diet changes that support thyroid function and you're going to be, you know, increasing your natural production of thyroid hormone, you're going to want to be tested more frequently so that you can adjust the dose of thyroid hormone replacement. Um, and, you know, maybe you'll eventually go off. Maybe you won't. It sort of depends on how much damage has already been done to your thyroid gland. But, you know, you'll want your doctor to be at least aware that you're making diet changes. But if you talk to your doctor and you say, um, I'm going to be eating, um, you know, I'm going to be working on my nutrition. I'm going to be working on eating more nutrient-dense foods. I'm going to be increasing my vegetable intake, increasing my intake of you know, fish and organ meat, and I'm going to be you know, trying to get the best quality foods that I can. You know, a doctor's not going to say, no, don't. You know, a doctor's going to say that that's great. I, you know, and even if they're skeptical about whether or not that's going to make a difference, um, you know, a doctor's always going to support a focus on nutrients. And I always sort of recommend... Um, you know, whenever anybody is talking about a paleo diet, I really dislike the list of don'ts as a definition of how we eat. And I would far rather start with the list of do's. Um, and I think it's far less intimidating and I think it's far more positive and I think it's far more relevant information for a medical professional. I want to know what foods you're eating because I want to know that you're getting the, you know, balanced nutrition. And when you start talking about getting, you know, eating lots of vegetables and eating some fruit, eating, you know, quality meats and lots of seafood, you know, a medical professional is just going to hear, great, you, you got all your bases covered. So, um, so I think that, you know, I think it's really important to have that discussion with your doctor. And it's really important also not to make changes in your medications without consulting with your doctor first. Um, I think a lot of um, people with autoimmune disease get very, very excited about making changes that are going to reverse their disease and they want to come off all of their medications, which I completely understand that um, desire to be off those medications. Most of them have just horrible side effects, side effects that are almost as bad, if not worse, than the symptoms of the disease in the first place. Some of them, these medications come with you know, really dire long-term risks. I mean, some of them increase your risk of cancer really dramatically. And so those are drugs that if you can get off them, you know, people want to get off of them. Um, but you want to have, make sure that you've got all of the diet and lifestyle stuff in place first and that um, you're starting to see improvements before you start weaning off of them. And some you can just stop and some you can wean off, but your doctor will let you know what's appropriate for you and for those particular medications. So that's another like really important thing to emphasize is this isn't instead of your doctor, this is with your doctor. 
yeah, exactly. Good uh, disclaimer because it's always advisable, as you said, to share with whoever is treating you what you're doing. But I, you know, earlier you said 50 million Americans, and that is a whole lot of people. Why do you think autoimmune disease is on the rise? Do you think it's just being more diagnosed, or is are the rates actually climbing? There's actually been studies to look at exactly that question. Is it the fact that we understand these diseases better, that more diseases are being identified, and that we have some, you know, certainly for some diseases, there's fairly good standard tests for them, although there's no, like, autoimmune disease test that will just test for any autoimmune disease. And there's a lot of autoimmune diseases in which there are no tests Um, And the diagnosis is just based on symptoms and and the pattern of the symptoms. But um, the studies that have looked at that have actually shown that's the increased recognition and increased training of medical professionals to diagnose these diseases only accounts for a fraction of the increase. And that the majority of the increase in cases that we're seeing is actually an increase in incidence of autoimmune disease. And I think, you know, Understanding now the importance of nutrition um, and understanding especially the links between these diseases and gluten and the these diseases and um, gut dysbiosis, any kind of anything weird happening in the bacteria in our digestive systems, and also understanding the links between these diseases and micronutrient deficiencies and how nutrient depleted the standard American diet has become in the last 30, 50, 100 years, I mean, it's sort of been steadily declining as we've introduced more and more processed foods and prepackaged foods. Um, and so I think that there's just a strong a link between the changes in our, our diet and lifestyle as a society as a whole as there are with cardiovascular disease or type 2 diabetes or obesity. And, um, and I think it's in a lot of cases, it's the same culprits. It's the same foods that are the problem. Um, and what makes one person have cardiovascular disease and somebody else have autoimmune disease is probably just a case of genetic predisposition. Don't you think that, it, I mean, don't you seem to notice that it's like younger and younger people? Then it, I mean, it seemed like it took longer for, for me to get sick. But then when I have clients, they were like, they were much younger than me and they were sicker. <laughs> Well, there's there's definitely some diseases that um, used to be considered, you know, diseases of the elderly or diseases of adulthood that we're now seeing in younger and younger people. And I was actually having this conversation with a friend the other day, and he mentioned diseases of your 40s. And I said, those used to be diseases of your 50s. And actually, before that, they were diseases of your 60s. Um, and I don't know when they were suddenly called diseases of your 40s, but that's that's a problem. Um, that there's so many so many autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis that we just think of as a disease of old age and you just go, oh yeah, I'm getting home, my joints are hurting, I must be getting old. Um, and then you have things like um, type 2 diabetes happening in kids, which is not an autoimmune disease, but has you know an immune component and there's, there's some causative factors that are linked there. Um, I don't know... I haven't seen any papers that have specifically looked at incidents of autoimmune disease, um, it sort of pediatric incidents of autoimmune disease and whether or not that's increasing. And I don't know, that's not something that I've particularly looked for. So that research might be out there, but it's, I haven't looked for it. So I haven't read it. Um, 
but definitely I just kind of feel, I feel like all chronic illness is impacting younger and younger people. And I, you know, I think a large part of that is that, you know, the, the food supply has changed so much. You know, when I was a kid, um, we were still eating liver every Sunday and we were still eating, uh, we were quite poor. So we were growing a lot of our own vegetables. We were fishing our own fish. Um, my mom would buy like a 50 pound bag of potatoes and a 50 pound bag of carrots. Um, and that's what would last us. We were still making a lot of our own food and that wasn't that strange. I mean, my, my friends' families were also eating a lot more home cooked foods. Um, you know, McDonald's was sort of a once a month treat rather than a three times a week treat. And, um, and I think that even 10 years later, I have a brother who's 10 years younger and his generation was eating a lot more prepackaged food and a lot more fast food. And that, you know, was, you know, in part a reflection of the change of my family's financial situation over those 10 years, but also a large you know, change in the, the food supply and how expensive prepackaged foods were. I mean, it used to be that they weren't cheap um, and then they became the cheapest food. And so I think that part of why we're seeing these diseases in younger and younger people is because they're, they have less and less time where their diet was actually not so bad and had some redeeming features. Um, you know, if you look at our parents' generation, you know, the, the food that they ate as kids was actually much more nutrient dense than the food that we ate as kids compared to the food that our, you know, as a general kids are, are eating now, um, outside of sort of the real food, um, and alternative health paleo movements. And, um, and so I think a large part of it is that I think stress and sleep, um, and I think those are really, really connected. So I think that, um, one of the things that's happened over the last 50 years is that we, as a society get an hour and a half to two hours less sleep every night than we did on average than we did 50 years ago. Um, and you know, I think a large part of that is things like televisions, social media. Um, you know, I think that as a generation, we, we kind of like to be social and, and party. And I think that we're really happy to sacrifice sleep in order to make more time for these things. And, you know, social connection is really important, but so is sleep. And I think that a lot of what we're seeing in terms of increased risk of um, or increased incidence of chronic illness can be tied to the effects that sleep deprivation have on stress hormones. Um, you know, it's it's much, much harder now to live on a single salary. So you have a lot more families who are double-income families, which is a much more stressful type of life to, to lead, to figure out who's going to pick up the kids and who's going to make supper and who's going to wash the dishes um, when there's nobody home, you know, all day. Like, it, it's just, I think that, you know, society has, has just become more stressful. It's um, your dollar doesn't go as far and you have to harder for it. And all of these things are contributors. And I think that um, it, it makes it an even bigger challenge to address those things, to prioritize more sleep and to reduce stress and increase your stress management activities. Um, and then 
source good food and actually cook it because not everybody's as comfortable in the kitchen anymore as, as um, probably people were on average 20 or 30 years ago. And so I think all of these things kind of combine to be, you know, challenges against um, finding health. And it just becomes a really steep learning curve for people. Yeah. The, that's always my, my, one of my two pieces of advice for people who are just trying to get healthier is sleep more and move more. And those two things don't really require any fancy equipment. So those are good things to get started on for sure. But this is kind of a multi-part question, but the big answer that people want obviously is how long do they need to follow an autoimmune type plan in order to see results? And then what if they are following it for months and, and they don't see results? So the answer to the first part of that question is, unfortunately, it depends. And it's also really hard to predict. So I have seen people put their diseases into remission in three days. Wow. That is the vast minority. Um, You know, it really depends on your genetics, your disease, how aggressive your disease is, how much damage to tissue there is, how... Um, micronutrient deficient you are, what type of bacteria are growing in your gut, um, like how leaky your gut is, whether or not you have any additional challenges like um, H. pylori infection or a parasite or, um, you know, if you have an autoimmune disease, disease that's attacking the tissues of your gut or any digest organs, that makes it more challenging to then address micronutrient deficiencies. So that slows everything down. It depends on how on plan you are, how well you're sleeping. A lot of autoimmune diseases disrupt your sleep because they're either painful or they affect your melatonin production. um, And that causes you to not have as restorative of sleep. Um, It depends on how much stress you're under, um, how um, good you are at spending time outside. And so you know, all of these, you know, all of these things that are contributing to disease are also all of the things that are going to affect how quickly you see results. And, um, as a general rule, you know, I, I typically recommend that people commit a good two to three months, um, before they try food reintroductions. Um, and what I ideally would like people to, to do is, see substantial improvement before they start food reintroductions. And for, you know, I would say for most people, generally that's going to happen in the one to six month range. Some people really have to stick to it for longer before they even start to feel improvements. Um, And that's usually the people who have challenges in their, you know, really severe challenges in their digestive system to absorbing nutrients. Um, that that just makes that just slows everything down. So if celiac disease, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, um, any kind of disease that's affecting pancreas or kidneys or liver, and um, and so that that makes it much more challenging. But um, you know, generally, if it's getting to be three four months and you're not at least seeing some improvement. That's when you need to start troubleshooting. That's where a functional medicine specialist can be really, really helpful. 
Um, and that's where, you know, I have a, a chapter in my book that's a troubleshooting chapter that really starts talking about things like digestive support supplements, um, which a lot of people might want to start playing with much, much earlier on. It just um, optimizes digestion, helps you absorb um, the, the nutrients from your food better. It can help restore those micronutrient or deficiency or micronutrient levels faster. Um, but but once you get into the few months, you know, a few months and you're not seeing any improvement, you know, that's where a functional medicine specialist or a holistic doctor is going to be able to, you know, really look at whether or not you have extra food sensitivities, whether or not um, there's something, there's a micronutrient deficiency that you need to focus on more food sources of that micronutrient or, or even do supplements that's where they're going to be able to evaluate if there's something really wonky going on in your digestive tract. Um, really, say, um, uh, recalcitrant uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth that you know may need an antibiotic treatment um, to knock them down, and then you can start working on supporting the right kind of bacteria through diet afterwards. Um, and and some people need some people need that sort of extra step, and that's why functional medicine specialists and holistic doctors can be so helpful um, in sort of troubleshooting and tinkering. Um, but, you know, so that's, I mean, that's a really hard answer because it's really, it's a huge range. Um, I personally took about four months on the autoimmune protocol to start seeing changes. And it was around the 10 month mark that suddenly everything kind of came together for me. Um, and in part, it was because I was still learning about how to modify diet and lifestyle for autoimmune disease. And so there were bits and pieces that I was adding as I went, um, as I delved more and more into the research. Um, and in part, it was because uh, I have a skin condition. And skin conditions seem to be some of the ones that are the slowest to heal. Skin is a really low priority organ um, for the body. And so generally it will prioritize nutrients and it will prioritize resources everywhere else before it prioritizes skin, unless you've got like an open wound and then it will (laughs) do what it can to stop the bleeding. But, um, and so, you know, in general, I find that people who are dealing with um, autoimmune diseases or immune diseases that affect the skin, those are the ones that really require the most patience. And it's hard. It's, I have no magic solution. It's hard. I was wondering, like say someone's been on regular paleo for a while and they're doing all right and they're seeing some improvements. I mean, how do they know if, I mean, and they do have an autoimmune disease, but how do they know if they need to take that extra step and go all the way? If, you know, if someone's seeing improvements, I always recommend if someone is coming to the paleo diet from a standard American diet or, or something that's not paleo, and they've got an autoimmune disease and they're looking at paleo versus autoimmune protocol, you know, I recommend that unless you're critically ill and you need to make as many changes as you can right now, um, in, in which case you've got extra motivation to, to make those extra diet changes, I always recommend starting with standard paleo. See how far it gets you. Um, understand what foods you're eating now that might be a problem. Um, so understand that nightshades may be a problem, that eggs might be a problem, that nuts and seeds might be a problem. And understand that nutrient density is really important. So you can do standard paleo with a focus on eating more organ meat and eating more seafood and eating more vegetables um, without necessarily eliminating those other foods. And see how far that gets you. So if you're seeing improvement, 
even if it's slow. I mean, I think that's really an individual decision whether or not to try an autoimmune protocol. If you're happy with your slow improvement, I don't see a particular um, motivational factor for for going stricter. And I would actually maybe even argue that if you're seeing improvement, then having a more relaxed diet where it's maybe not as stressful to figure out what to eat is probably going to benefit you more than tightening up your diet is going to be. Um, That's kind of what I was, sorry, just wondering, like, at what point, like, I had, we used to have a lot of clients, and, you know, if I, if I pulled, if I said, oh, you have to do all this stuff, like, they would just have a stress meltdown, and what point is it that, that you just say, well, it's better to just kind of chill out rather than pull out everything, you know, how do you figure that balance out? you know, to where you can actually live with something? I think it's really individual. I think it's a really individual challenge. And I think that different people will have different sort of non-starters. So somebody might have the, well, okay, yeah, I can get rid of all of this other stuff, but I'm not giving up my coffee. And to that person, you say, okay, do all that other stuff and don't give up your coffee. See how far you get. Um, some people might just be really struggling just to stay gluten-free. And, and if, to that person, you say, okay, let's just stay gluten-free, work on your sleep, work on your stress management, get that stuff down first. And I think that some people do really, really well with a, here's the plan, jump in with both feet, rip off the Band-Aid and just do it. And some people do much, much better with let's take steps. And, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of people, not everybody, but I think most people have at least an idea of what's going to be easier for them, whether or not just taking some time to prepare and jumping in is going to work better for them or whether um, taking baby steps, making some concessions, finding, you know, what, what they can and can't do is going to be a better approach. And I think you just kind of do what's going to work best for that particular person. And, um, and in that case, you know, working with, um, you know, a, nutritional therapy practitioner, a nutrition consultant, you know, a, a registered dietitian or a, you know, certified health coach, somebody who's familiar with um, the difference between a paleo diet and an autoimmune paleo diet um, and who can kind of help somebody prioritize can be really, really helpful. Yeah, that is always the best piece of advice is start, you know, everybody's so biochemically different and mentally and emotionally different that you have to meet the person where they are. And, and some people have a very high commitment level and other people are, you know, have emotional attachments to food and it's hard for them to give them up. But with that said, you know, what if someone is really on board with making these changes, but are having trouble with their family or friends that are kind of not really supportive? What I, I run across that a lot of my practice too is, People who are on autoimmune plans or very restrictive plans and, and they legitimately are, you know, get anxiety or worried when they have to go to brunch parties and in their egg dishes being served and people don't understand why they're doing it. And come on, you can just do it this once. And, you know, you know what are, what's your advice for those people dealing with those types of situations? Uh, it's tough. And, and different situations are sort of tough differently. Um, you know, my, my sort of flippant responses, you know, give them a copy of my book, (laughs) show them the science behind it. 
Um, and, you know, that certainly would work for some family members. I mean, if your husband is telling you like, what, you know, you're, you're going on this crazy diet and, and there's no science to support it. And, and, you know, clearly there is science to support it and you can hand them this, your husband, this resource and say, no, look at all of the science and this is what I'm going to do. Um, you know, that hopefully would be enough to, to bring him around. That doesn't mean he's going to do it with you. Um, so I think there's there's two parts to this challenge. One is sort of navigating the social situations, navigating, uh, you know, how do you get food in a restaurant? How do you, you know, explain to your friends that there's all of these foods you can't eat? Um, the other aspect is how do you, like, live in a house where there's tempting foods around that are not going to work for you? Um, in terms of navigating social situations, you know, I think that having an open dialogue is always helpful, but... I, you know what I do? I, I talk about being allergic. And even though I'm not allergic to these foods, you know, if I have a bite of a tomato, I'm going to have a flare that's going to last three months. And this has happened to me twice. And so it, I, I know from experience that I can tolerate an accidental exposure to gluten better, better than I can tolerate an accidental exposure to nightshades. And that's really, really hard to avoid in a restaurant to say, okay, but there's no paprika, but there's no red pepper. Make sure there's no red pepper. Make sure there's no cayenne. No, no, don't put tomato paste on that. Oh yeah. And I also can't have gluten. Oh yeah. And I also can't have dairy. And, um, (laughs) and so when it comes to like catered events, it just is really helpful to have, or like a restaurant, it's just really helpful to have a dialogue and find something plain that you can eat. When it comes to like being company at someone's house, I always just offer to bring something. So, um, I just say, okay, I've got a lot of food sensitivities. Is there something I can bring to make it easier for you? Um, can I bring dessert or can I bring, can I bring the meat? You know, can I bring the thing that's going to be hardest for you to figure out how to feed me? Um, there's, you know, a few convenience foods that you can keep in your purse that can make things easier. If you end up in a place and there's really nothing to eat, um, there's a few different types of pemmican. Um, there's one flavor of Epic Bar. The Bison Epic Bar is um, it is safe. There's some things like U.S. Wellness Meat sells um, prepackaged salmon that's like shelf stable for five years. Um, you know, and depending on where you're going, one of those things might seem a little bit odd to you know, could pull a can of sardines out of your purse. Um, some people may not like that, but um, but you know, on airplanes, yeah. Um, airports, you might get away with it. The airplane itself, maybe not. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe like a, a baggie of vegetables or something. If, if you think that it's likely you can throw that in or a banana, you know, just something. Um, I, I do a lot of like backup food in my purse in case I end up somewhere where it's, you know, I'm going to be starving and there's really going to be nothing for me to eat. Um, there comes a, a point where like I have my, my lines that I know I can't cross and nightshades is, is the big one. Gluten is also pretty bad. Um, but if I had dairy or if I had rice, um, you know, if I had some black beans, I, I wouldn't feel very well afterwards, but I'd get over it. And, and so I have the, you know, having that, that just comes from experience, um, following this diet and experience 
with food reintroductions and figuring out where your lines are, that can be really, really helpful in navigating situations so you know, okay, well, that salad dressing is made with canola oil. It's not the greatest thing for me, but um, I'm, I'm going to be okay with that if I just have it once. Some people aren't. I mean, some people really can't have those polyunsaturated um, omega-6 fats um, like that, and that they're just as sensitive to those as they are to gluten. So knowing where those lines are for you can be really, really helpful. And um, I just find just saying I'm allergic. I discovered I'm allergic. People understand the word allergy better than they understand things like therapeutic diets. I mean, it, it, it just, it becomes a non-conversation. And, you know, I'm not trying to say that everyone should lie, um, but I am saying that this is what I do, and it works very, very well for me. With good friends, I have more a more in-depth conversation. But if I'm going to a restaurant, I just say I'm allergic. Just period. You know, it's just an easier explanation. Um, in terms of living in a house with ingredients that are going to be tempting for you, that are not going to work for you, you know, if you've got if your family's eating pizza, or even if they're paleo, but they're eating, um, you know chocolate chip cookies made with almond flour or um, maybe they're eating, you know, spaghetti sauce on, you know, some kind of paleo-friendly noodle. Um, You know, finding, I I feel like my best strategy for that, because that is what happens in my household, is to have foods on hand that are like my substitute for those things. So if I, I actually do all the cooking and I do periodically make something with nightshades for my family. I always do that on nights where there's leftovers for me to eat. Um, so that my meal is easy. It's leftover something from, and I'm not cooking two meals. I've just got something I can reheat for me and I'm going to make something with tomatoes for my family because they all love it and they all do well with it. Um, in terms of treats, I, um, usually have something for me, which is usually frozen fruit. I love frozen fruit. There's something about, I don't know, frozen grapes, especially it's like totally my favorite thing. Um, and, um, and uh, you know, and I have my, you know, again, I have my lanes I can cross. Um, I know chocolate gives me really horrible acne, but it's just acne. It doesn't flare my autoimmune disease. (laughs) So, so there are times, uh, and let's be frank, there's times roughly once every four weeks, um, where I indulge in some chocolate and I just deal with the acne and it's not hormone acne. It is chocolate acne, (laughs) but you know, I'll blame the hormones. Um, and, um, and so, you know, for me, it's, it's like planning in ahead. It's making sure that there's the, the thing that I'm going to eat when they're eating something that I want. And then there's the, the whole aspect of, um, just escaping. Like if my husband said, we're going to order gluten-free pizza tonight, I would be like, great, I'm going to go for a walk. (laughs) Um, and, and just not be here because I have dreams about pizza and usually in my dream, I'm like halfway through the third piece where I suddenly realize that every single ingredient on that pizza is going to cause an autoimmune flare. <laughs> it's an anxiety dream. And then I have then I have this like massive panic of like, oh no, what have I done? And what should I do now? Should I you know, and it's just these like, yeah, it is an anxiety dream. And I have them fairly frequently, and it's always pizza, it's never any other food, and it's always the third piece for some reason. Um and uh and so, you know, there's there's certain times where just doing something else and escaping can, you know, just be a a good coping mechanism. And if you're picking something like going to a yoga class or going for a walk, you get to kill two birds with one stone. Um, 
but it's, it's challenging. And I think that experience helps, um, seeing improvement in your symptoms because of the changes you're making can be a huge motivator to keep going. So if you're at the beginning and if you're waiting for those changes, it, it can be extra hard to make good choices. And, um, you know, it, it becomes a, um, unfortunately sort of an issue of, you know, being disciplined and the, the best way to find that strength is to make sure that you're getting tons of sleep. Um, there's a, an aside note, those cauliflower crust pizzas that are eggless are actually pretty good. And that would be AIP legal. What kind of flour are they made with? It's just cauliflower that you... Oh, cauliflower. ...round with- up in a, in a food processor. And I can't remember what else is in there. There might be like an arrowroot or a type of starch, but... Mm-hmm. You okay? Uh, but there they are. there are eggless cauliflower pizza crust recipes. That I are- have never seen an eggless one. I've only ever seen ones with eggs. Yeah, there is an eggless one out there. I'll, I'll have to send it to you. Yeah, please. But I wonder what the binder is. I mean, I tried it with like... <laughs> flax or you know chia but that's a seed so i got maybe the binder might be arrowroot yeah arrowroot. and some people don't tolerate starch as well but i believe it is arrowroot and it's i get uh there's an allergen free baking site she has hashimoto's and it's all grain egg dairy free and there are tons of uh ways to modify the recipes and i remember seeing that on there and thinking wow that's awesome for the autoimmune peaks I'm going to look for that and make it. I was wondering, I mean, do you feel like this is like the tomato thing? I mean, you feel like that's like a life sentence or do you feel like that someday you could heal your gut enough to where you could eat that? Uh, for me personally, I suspect it's a life sentence. Um, I It just seems so far that my immune system is really, really sensitive to the immune stimulating compounds in nightshades. Um, that doesn't mean that five years down the road, if I'm feeling really, really healthy and my um, disease has been in remission for years, that I won't be stupid enough to try it and see what happens. Um, but, you know, in, in many ways, the autoimmune paleo diet is a elimination diet. And what it does is it cuts out, um, all of the major culprits with a focus on anything that could stimulate the immune system, um, or impact the immune system in a way that would be dysfunctional. And, um, and what happens when you do an elimination diet, there's, uh, certain cells that are sort of responsible for the reaction. And they're the ones who, when they see this food, they go, ah, something that we don't like. Everyone get excited. Then there's other cells whose job it is is to actually restrain that reaction and stop it from getting out of control. So they're the cells that go, okay, everybody, they like calm down. Like, yeah, yeah, this is a problem, but calm down. We're not, we're not going to, you know, overreact. Um, and what happens when you follow an elimination diet and you cut out the stimulant to the cells that react? Um, is that the the cells that actually restrain the reaction die off faster than the cells that are responsible for the reaction. So that's why when you reintroduce, if it's a food that you're really legitimately sensitive to, you tend to have an exaggerated reaction. And it's because those cells whose job it is to restrain the system aren't there or their, their numbers aren't as high. 
And so the reaction kind of gets out of control. Um, and it can be really scary for people. And, and you'll, it can be really frustrating. People can say, well, I used to eat bread every day. I cut it out for a month and now I have it and I have these horrible symptoms every time I have it. Um, how, you know, this cutting it out made me sensitive. And that's... <laughs> That's, yeah, I hear that all the time. Right. And it's, you know, it's a sort of natural interpretation of those symptoms. Um, but the reason is because of the, the cell types in the immune system um, and the fact that the cells that are reacting to a food have a, a longer lifespan um, and a longer, there's a longer memory. So there's more production of those cells over time than the cells that are restraining the system. Uh, and that's why elimination diets are so, I mean, they're still the gold standard for allergies, sensitivities, and intolerances is because you, you can, you can't test, you know, for every possible way that you can be sensitive to a food. Um, but when you, if you eliminate something for two to four weeks and add it back in, typically, that reaction would be magnified and it makes it really clear. Um, the reason why the autoimmune protocol is set up the way it is is because it cuts out foods that are problematic across the board and it cuts out foods that um, are likely problematic for people with more sensitive immune, or immune systems or sensitive guts, um, sensitive to the sort of extra... Um, either extra stimulation of the immune system or extra injury to the gut barrier. And, you know, genetics is a really big factor here. Genetics accounts for approximately a third of a person's risk to autoimmune disease. And many of the ways that genetics intersect with um, diet and lifestyle is by impacting how your body responds to certain foods. And that is not going to change um, you can cut those foods out and you can you can lose the effect, but it doesn't necessarily change the sensitivity. Um, but I do, you know, I do often see people follow an autoimmune paleo diet for a month. They start reintroductions and they narrow in on what the one problematic food is. Um, they successfully reintroduce everything else. I successfully reintroduced eggs. Um, and I can handle nuts and seeds if I use them as a condiment. I'm really sensitive to the omega-3, omega-6 balance. So as long as I don't overdo it, um, I can handle them. Um, and so for me, you know, my real non-starter is, is nightshades. And, um, and that's fantastic. But I know many people who, you know, two years later, they, they do great if they stick to it 100%. And as soon as they try a reintroduction, the wheels fall off the cart. And so it's highly variable. And think speaking of food allergy testing that just doing an or speaking of food allergies in general just doing an allergy elimination diet is more accurate than spending hundreds of dollars on food allergy testing and in many cases it's much more accurate but where it can be challenging is if you're really intimidated i mean it, there's standard protocols where you start with just four foods and then you start reintroducing and those are really, really long because you're only reintroducing, you know, one or two foods a week. Um, it's a, it's a big commitment to do those elimination diets. Um, and so where food allergy testing can be helpful is in narrowing in on the culprits, but these tests are really, you know, they're notoriously variable and in part because the, the, a food sensitivity system in our bodies is very dynamic and food sensitivities come and go, especially if you have a leaky gut. So, you know, in part they're variable because the system is dynamic and food sensitivities do 
actually come and go. Um, allergies are much more stable, um, but in part because of the testing methods. Um, so, you know, I, I feel like they can be informative for narrowing in on how to structure an elimination diet. Um, but they're, they're extra information to help you do that rather than the definitive answer in most cases. Agreed. Yeah. Well, we're sort of running out of time and I want to make sure that we get to some of our Facebook questions that came in. Yeah. So here's one from Brooke. She says, I'm wondering if raw grass fed milk from a two cows is acceptable. And is there any science behind this? And, and first maybe we should. What? You cut out at the, after. My Skype has been acting up. So can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. So the question is from Brooke and she says, I'm wondering if raw grass-fed milk from A2 cows is acceptable, and is there any science behind this? And I'm even wondering what an A2 cow is. So an A2 cow, so there's A1 and A2, what this actually refers to is the type of casein molecule in their milk. Okay. So, for example, you know, most of the conventional dairy in the grocery store is from A1 cows. Um, A2 cows is you know, breeds, and I don't, I don't know what breed are A1 or A2, um, but A2 cows are breeds that you'll often see in sort of small-scale family farms. Um, goats produce A2 casein, um, and which is why often when people are allergic to cow milk, they can handle goat milk. Um, and so there's a substantial enough difference between the A1 form of casein and the A2 form of casein that often when people are um, allergic or sensitive to A1 casein, they can handle A2 casein. Um, and with milk, though, it's important to understand that casein is not the only protein in milk that has a high occurrence of allergies. So there's, you can be allergic to milk sort of independent of what form of casein is in it. Um, lactose intolerance um, can be a problem, although if you're eating raw milk, then you're getting lactase as well as lactose, and that helps with the lactose digestion. So in general, you know, my, my feeling on dairy is, especially when you start talking about grass-fed dairy, you start talking about, um, uh, you know, raw or vat pasteurized, low-temperature vat pasteurized dairy, um, where you're retaining a lot of the, the enzymes that help you digest the dairy. You're talking about full fats. You're getting all those fat-soluble vitamins. You know, you start talking about a food that really has some, you know, redeeming qualities in terms of nutrition. Um, but it's still a food in which the sensitivity rate is very high. So I still recommend starting off dairy-free with, um, actually even for anybody adopting a paleo diet, um, I, I would still recommend doing at least two weeks dairy-free when you first start. Um, but especially with autoimmune disease, um, just because people with autoimmune disease tend to be in that fraction of people with high food sensitivities, um, And then I think, you know, playing with some, you know, full fat grass fed A2 dairy, I think is totally awesome. I think there's some great fat soluble vitamins and in particular, you know, the animal form of vitamin A um, deficiency in retinoic acid is linked to a variety of autoimmune diseases. It's really, really important for um, the barrier tissues. So that's, you know, anything that separates the inside of your body from the outside world. So clearly that's things like skin, but it's also things like your lungs and your gut. 
Um, so it can actually help getting more retinoic acid can help restore the, your gut barrier, um, as, especially also with vitamin D because those two work together in barrier tissues and K2. So, um, you know, I think that it's a really great thing to play with. I, I, um, get really, really bad digestive distress from dairy. But one of the things that I've discovered is cultured grass-fed ghee. And when you culture it, it um, degrades the protein before it's then turned and then clarified. And so it, it, you know, normal ghee would have some trace protein, but cultured grass-fed ghee has no trace protein. And I actually found that my skin was healthier when I started adding that into my diet. And I am pretty sure it's, well, I attribute it to the fat-soluble vitamins. I could attribute it to the, you know, happiness factor, I suppose. But I think I think it's really the the fat soluble vitamins in it that that actually made that difference because of how important those are for barrier tissues. How? Where do you get that? I I, I just where I buy just about everything, which is Amazon. I buy the um, pure Indian foods. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, it, up. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's like twice the price of their regular ghee. Yeah. But for me, it's totally worth it because I get to eat it without having, you know, digestive distress. And generally, I kind of feel like if something is causing me digestive distress, it's damaging my gut. So that's something that I would prefer to avoid. And um, kind of along those lines, uh, the next question has a part about the goat dairy. Um, what about the difference or. You know, can people who have autoimmune tolerate that any better? Uh, you get the same sort of question about goat dairy or camel dairy or sort of any kind of non-cow dairy. And you get the same question about non-chicken eggs, so duck eggs or goose eggs. Um, there are some compounds that, um, you know, especially in eggs, the, the lysozyme in egg white is in all kinds of eggs. Um, but non-chicken eggs tend to be less allergenic than chicken eggs. Um, so when you remove the, the food intolerance or the food allergy, that, that is then um, removing, I think, one of the major ways that those foods are problematic for people with autoimmune disease. And you have the same discussion with eggs as you do with dairy, especially pasture-raised, you know, fully out living in the wild, um, eating the bugs out of the cow poop chickens. Um, you know, there's some really great vitamins in those egg yolks. So if you're not sensitive or if you want to just have the yolks, I mean, that's a really great food to be including because it's a very nutrient dense food. So, um, the answer is yes, it can work better than, than cow milk. Um, but I still, you know, recommend eliminating all dairy at first. Um, if, if you can, I mean, again, it goes back to the other conversation that we had about, you know, trying baby steps and trying different changes and you can, you can always experiment and try it. Um, it is more likely to work for more people than cow dairy. Yeah, kind of, um, <clears throat> we had one more Facebook question from Suzanne. It's, she's so excited about your book and she wants to figure out how to get it in Europe and she also wants to know if you have a secret for making bone broth without being nauseated by the smell of <laughs> cooking in, in her apartment. 
I love the smell of bone broth. So I don't know if I'm the best person to ask that question. I'll start with the first part of the question, which is the book is coming to Europe, but there's a couple months delay in distribution. And I don't understand uh, that side of publishing at all. I let my publisher deal with it, but there is, I don't know if they, I don't know what they stick it in rowboats or something. I don't know how it takes two months to get to Europe. It's like a movie, you know, they get it later. Uh, yeah, so it is coming. Um, if you don't want to wait, you can order from Amazon.com and pay the increased shipping rate. Um, but other than that, I think it's supposed to hit Europe towards the end of March. Um, and, but it is it is coming. Um, in English, there's no translations in the works at this point. Um, um, but that's there are options for getting your, your hands on a on a copy. Now, I, my understanding of ebook regulations is that even in Europe, you wouldn't be able to buy an ebook unless you hacked a IPS address, and I would never recommend that you do something illegal like that. Um, it, but it's an option. Um, so uh, bone broth. So, um, so there's two tricks to bone broth. The first big trick is to skim it for the first half hour to hour that it's simmering. So that is, you know, as it starts to boil, it gets foam on the top and you skim off that foam and that foam is partly responsible for the smell. It also, if you leave it in there, it tends to make your broth a little bit more bitter and that changes the smell of it and also changes the taste of it. Um, so that can be one trick. I mean, then you just have to deal with an hour of it smelling bleh. Um, the other, you know, the only other really good trick I have would be to do it in a pressure cooker instead of like a slow cooker or a pot on the stove. Because a pressure cooker, while the pressure is, um, well, while it's sealed, you're not getting any sort of vapors off of it. Um, and the nice thing about doing it in a pressure cooker is it cuts the cooking time um, by about 75%. So if I, you know, personally, I normally do a 48-hour broth on the stove. But if I'm doing it in the pressure cooker, I do it for like 8 to 12 hours and get pretty much the same broth, pretty much the same bones falling apart at the end. I typically do it on the stove because my pot that I can do it in in the stove holds about four times as much as my pressure cooker can. Um, and so it's a, it's a good trade for me. Um, but uh, but that's, kind of, that's my best. I don't know. Do you girls have a, a good suggestion for not smelling bone broth while it's making? I say just get over it. <laughs> I make mine in the crock pot and it doesn't seem overwhelmingly smelly. Although perhaps putting it next to a cracked window might help, I guess. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> I mean, it could be also like, you know, grass fed cow bones. I mean, they kind of smell like grass sometimes. <laughs> so it could be that, you know, change your bones, maybe get something else that doesn't. I mean, we had this old, I think we got this old cow this time, and I mean. Or just order it from somewhere. I mean, there's people <laughs> that you can order it, you know, it'll come to your house. Um, maybe, I don't know if she's abroad, but. Well, she's in Europe, so yeah. there might be still. I I don't know. Um, get your friends to make it for you. Yeah. <laughs> Pay your neighbor. Yeah, it just depends on I think just keep trying it and maybe you'll get used to it. Or you, you could, if you just try maybe a different, maybe it was also that the vegetables you added to it or something like that. So just keep, 
you know, change it up a little bit and maybe you'll have a different result. And maybe you cook it on the stove rather than in the crock pot or just, you know, tweak it a little bit and you might have some different result. So, I, I think those are all of our questions, correct? We made it. Yay. So, Sarah, tell everyone where they can get your book and your website and everything. Uh, so, The Paleo Approach is my book. It is available on online from all major um, online retailers, and it's available in bookstores everywhere. It's in every Barnes & Noble in the country and also a bunch of independent bookstores. Um, and it should be in Canada this week, I think, and coming to the rest of the world, um, hopefully by the end of March. Um, you can find me at thepaleomom.com and you can find links to all of my social media sites from there. I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest. And, uh, I'm also co-host a podcast called the Paleo View podcast, and that's on iTunes and Stitcher. And you can also stream directly off thepaleomom.com. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us again, Sarah. And Thank you. Always super informative. And we know your book's going to be a big hit, and we'll recommend it to all our friends. Thank you so much. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me back. Bye-bye. Bye.